Would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and our text will be verses 10 through 13. We're taking a break from Hebrews this morning to hopefully set the foundation for what we'll be studying this whole entire week at our Vacation Bible School, and our VBS theme is the Keepers of the Kingdom. So the, the subject, the theme of this year's Vacation Bible School is the Kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is in many ways the theme of Scripture. And we see how God's kingdom unfolds through His covenants with man throughout Scripture. So to say that the kingdom of God is an important subject is an understatement. It's a massive subject. It is the subject of Scripture. And because it is such an important subject of Scripture, it's also uh, oftentimes a controversial subject because there's implications for how we understand the kingdom of God on how we live our lives here in this world right now. So the couple of things that we have to understand is a few simple facts about God's kingdom. All that exists is God's. All that exists was created by God, and all that exists is maintained by God. He is sovereign over all things in heaven and on earth, and that sovereignty includes His sovereign reign even over Satan. Satan is not an independent, all-powerful being, but rather is a dependent, powerful, but not all-powerful being. In God's infinite wisdom and goodness and holiness, He determined before time even began that there would be a process that His creation would go through. And what that process is, is that temporal life on this earth and how we live in God's kingdom. This is why we're called elect exiles by Peter. That is our Christian life walking through this world in God's kingdom. This is why the author of Hebrews says that Abraham was by faith looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So scripture states that while this is God's kingdom, there's something that we're looking forward to, that we're moving towards. We realize this in our experience that here on this earth we face pain, death, persecution, strife between individuals. We see nations warring against one another. But we're also told that in God's kingdom as Christians, as those that are followers of Christ, that we would experience joy and peace. We would be comforted by God and that Christ himself promises to meet all of our needs, physical and spiritual. So while we do face the trials of this life, while we struggle with sin and temptations as we battle through this world, we recognize also as Christians that Christ is our victorious King ruling over His kingdom. But it does bring up this question, why do we struggle with those things? Why do we face these daily battles? In fact, Peter states that our, there's a continual battle against the flesh that's taking place. Paul seems to allude to the same thing in Romans chapter 7. And we realize that Christ even told us that we'd be persecuted in this world. And why is that? Well, because sin entered the world. And as a result of that, what we see is we have those that are under the dominion of sin, those that are under the dominion of Satan, and those that are following Christ as the true king. St. Augustine 
wrote perhaps one of the most important books in, in, in the Western world, which was called The City of God, where he contrasted two cities, the city of man and the city of God, and how the man in the city of God lives while living yet in the city of man. Well, the Scripture doesn't call it a city so much, but Scripture speaks of living in God's kingdom, and God's kingdom is overall, it's ultimate. But we recognize there's another domain. Satan is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4, and Colossians 1.13, it speaks of his domain of darkness. And so how do we live in this world as Christians that are part of the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, what we have to recognize is that as Christians, Satan has no power over us. He may influence us, he may entice us, he may tempt us, but we are set free from him. Yet whenever we see disunity, whenever we see fighting, whenever we see pain, whenever we see suffering, whenever we see disease, we have to always attribute it to one thing. It always goes back to sin. The result of sin is what causes our issues. The fall that entered into this world is what we daily have to contend with. And because we know and because we sin, we know that sin is a worthy adversary. Satan is a worthy adversary. So how do we live as Christians that are in the world, as Christ says, but not of the world? Well, the first thing we have to recognize is this, was we fight not as defeated people, but we fight as more than conquerors. We fight fully armored in the strength of the Lord. And so as we look at our passage this morning, I want us to see four things. First of all, that we see that we have a supernatural strength. That we are given a supernatural armor. That we are in the midst of a supernatural battle. And that we are given a supernatural perseverance. So let us hear the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This is God's word. The first thing I would draw your attention to is the supernatural strength that is available to the Christian. Verse 10 begins to tell us this by this command to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And he he says this, he begins this final argument by saying, finally. Which means this is Paul's concluding uh, words to the church of Ephesus. He, He writes this letter while he himself is imprisoned in Rome. And this letter is, is really, in many ways, one of the simplest letters to understand because it's so clear in how it's structured. That doesn't make it a simplistic letter, but it's just so clear where Paul tells us in the first three chapters, this is who you are in Christ. This is what you have available to you in Christ. This is who Christ is to the Christian. 
And then in chapter 4, he moves on to say, because of who Christ is in your life, this is how you're to live. And so we're in that section of Ephesians, which is telling us, this is how you are to live because of or in light of who you are in Christ. And so how are we to live as Christians, those that are in union with Christ. Well, he concludes that argument of this is how you live in the world. So it's very practical. This is how you live is by being strong in the Lord. So this is not of ourselves. This is not of our own strength. This is not of picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and marching forward in our own power. But this is a command to put ourselves before the Lord recognizing our weakness and that our empowerment, the empowerment of the Christian life is by and through our triune God. Now, the first thing you have to note is this is for those that know the Lord. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not for you. This is for those that have trusted in the Lord Jesus and have been saved by His grace through faith. This is what's available to you if you're in Christ. And the first place we have to begin when we're told to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might is we have to go against every grain in our body that says, I'm independent, I'm going to do things my own way. And we have to think entirely different. It means we must be honest with ourselves and recognize our own frailty, our own weakness, our own susceptibility. In other words, to be strong in the Lord is a call to be dependency upon the Lord. And specifically, what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? What does it mean to be, have the strength of His might? You know, that's one of those messages we hear so often. Be strong in the Lord. But what does that really mean? Well, we have to see it as this. It is God's grace flowing to the believer to sustain them through any obstacle, through any temptation, through any trial. God's grace going to the believer. So the first thing is recognizing our weakness, which puts us on our knees before a holy God, asking and pleading for His grace to strengthen us. Recognizing our weakness puts us on our knees when we stand on our own and stand independent and think that we've got all things figured out is usually the last places we find ourselves is on our knees. So what does this look like to be strong in the Lord? Well, Paul goes on to describe armor that we're to put on, and most of that armor is related to the Word of God, it's related to prayer, and it's related to living in a community of believers. So the, the means of God's strength, we cannot separate it from God's Word, we cannot separate it from prayer, and we cannot separate it from a community of believers. That's what it looks like to be strong in the Lord. We don't take things into our own hands, but we are trusting in Him and trusting in His ways in all situations at all times. What does it mean to trust in God? What does it mean to trust in His ways? What does that trust look like? Let me just give you a very simple and practical application of trusting in God. 
Does God instruct what I'm supposed to do in a given situation? And if the answer is yes, God has instructed how I am to make decisions in my everyday life. Being obedient to Him is trusting in Him. And that obedience oftentimes is difficult. That obedience to Christ in any given situation can actually put us at odds with our neighbor. Being obedient to Christ can put us at odds with our workplace. Being obedient to Christ can put us at odds with our spouse, with our children. But here's the question that we have to face. Are we trusting in Christ? Well, then trusting in Christ then is saying, you are king, you are sovereign, you have called me as your child. I'm going to trust you in this, even though here in this world it might bring me pain. That's trusting in Christ. That is, that is being dependent upon Him and His strength. That's what it means to be strong in the Lord. And knowing this helps us to go through the things that we face on a daily basis, the things that we face in this life. But it's also important that we recognize something else, is to be strong in the Lord, is what is the source of our strength? It says, in the strength of His might. How great is God's might? Well, if you just ask that question of Scripture, it gives you a few few answers that might help us to see how powerful God is. The first thing that we, we can draw from this is that God's strength is immeasurable. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, it says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power? And that power is not applied in some general way in chapter 1, but it's actually applied to the believer. It says in this, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? In other words, that omnipotence of God is there before the believer to tap into by God's grace. We see that His might is also eternal. Not only is it immeasurable, means it cannot be measured, it cannot be weighed, but it is also an eternal power. In fact, this is what we will sing in heaven. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 12, it says, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. His power is immeasurable. His power is eternal. And it is for the believer. And now that's speaking of God and His power, but we also see that this power is very practically applied to us believers. In fact, it's this very power that supplies our needs and service within the church. That great immeasurable power of God that's part of that armor of God that we're told to be strong in. What is it that empowers us for ministry? It's that same power. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So have you ever served in the church? Have you ever served your neighbor in loving your neighbor as you seek to love God? Where did that come from? 
Well, it says God supplies that to you. Now, you've got to go and do it. You've got to go and serve. But where does it come from? It comes from God. He's the one who supplies that to us. We also have to see that this power is the very same power where he will unleash his wrath on his enemies. We see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That same power that comes from God that is available to the believer that supplies their needs for service is the very same power that God will display eternally upon His enemies. And while that sounds... Brutal, and it is what we have to recognize is knowing that actually helps us deal with the battle we're in right now. Because we know there is coming a day where that same power that God gives to you is going to be the same power that is upon his enemies, those that seek to harm his beloved bride, the church. That's how we get through this world of injustice. The next thing that we see about this, it's the strength of his might, is this, is this is a work of our triune God. The power and the strength that we have for the battle that we face on a daily basis. I want you to just notice the pattern we see in Ephesians. It says in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11 is this, put on the whole armor of God. That is speaking of the Father. Verse 17, and take the helmet of the salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. In other words, this is a work of the triune God, of His unlimited power that takes place in the life of the believer is that He is working in us. He is persevering us. It is what, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, is that same power that provides us with joy in this world right now. He's just thinking of the immeasurable greatness of God and His power and unlimited power. Why would we think we could just do things on our own? Now, it's important that we notice what this says here. In verse 10... It puts us in a, almost a, a passive sense. Now, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, which is trusting in God, that God is in control. But th- this is an important order. We begin there because the next section moves to something else, and that is to, that we're supposed to do something. So if you could look at verse 10 as us resting in Christ, the rest of this is then, okay, here's what you've got to do now. And so this order is super important. We are told we need to rest in Christ for our strength and that He supplies us with the needed strength. But what we cannot think is this is a let go and let God theology. You know that. Well, just let go and let God, right? You've heard that. Well, in some sense that's true, but when that's taken too far into its logical conclusion, it becomes a very dangerous and almost a fatalistic theology. Because we are called to action. We're called to be active. You could illustrate this in Israel's battles. You think of Israel's so many different battles that they were told where God says, I will fight for you. 
but then you read of them in a, in a battle. So how do we understand that? God says, I'll fight for you. But they still had to do what? They still had to strap on the armor. They still had to take the battlefield. They had to follow instructions from their commanders. They had to follow orders. They had to still go out and do battle, even though the victory was guaranteed as God would fight for them. That's the Christian life. Look at every battle that Israel wins in the Old Testament, and you can just simply say, that's the Christian life. God has already won and determined the victory, but I still got to strap on the armor and I still got to go out and fight. And that's where we move on to what we're supposed to do. Where we see, we've seen our supernatural strength. Now we see our supernatural armor. In verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God. And then verse 13, there's a restatement of this. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So, so twice we're, we're told to put on or to take up, that is to welcome what is available to you. And what is available to you is this armor of God. And, and the way this is worded in the original language is speaking of a complete set of instruments used in defensive and offensive warfare, meaning you're lacking nothing. I know this will fail as a, as a poor illustration, but just to give you an idea, Hollywood picks up on this in almost every movie where someone has to go to battle and they have some secret underground layer full of weapons and they, they open it up and there's just all of these weapons and they're, they're loading up all of these stuff. And then they, they go into battle and they never run out of bullets. Well, what we, we are given and is, is unlimited armor that covers every aspect that we need to defend and also to go in the offense. See, this is not a defensive posture. What happens when you're playing chess and you're only on the defense the whole time? You, you lose. This is both defense and for the offense. And the first thing that we have to recognize is putting on this armor of God is that we lack nothing. In fact, Christ says in John chapter 15, verse 5, you can do nothing apart from me, which means this, in Christ, we have everything we need. And so when we put on the armor of God, and we're not talking about a physical, actual physical armor, it recognizes this supernatural armor is that we are putting on an armor that is different. We fight our battles not according to the wisdom of man, but rather according to the wisdom of God. I think of man's ways. If, if you're insulted, what does a man do when they're insulted? They insult back. You think of man's ways of fighting battles. If you're offended, what do you do? You offend back. Man's ways are this. is If you're cheated against, what do you do? You cheat back. What happens in man's ways when you're cut off in traffic? You scream, you yell. What are Christ's ways? When you're insulted, you trust in Christ. When you're offended, you trust in Christ. When you're cheated, you trust in Christ. 
Now, this does not mean we're just passive people that get picked on and that we get taken advantage of. It just means the world's methods of battle is not our method of battle. We're called to be peculiar. We are called to be different. And here's why. Because we're born again. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a new mind. We've been given the heart and mind of Christ. And the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of peace, isn't it? So our battles and the way we take up battle is not according to the world's ways. That doesn't mean we're not without conflict. Actually, this assumes we're going to constantly have conflict. You think about how it works just in the church. Your brother's in sin. What do you have to do even though you don't want to do it? You go to him and you tell him you're in sin. Christ commands us to do that. That's part of that armor that keeps the church pure. In the world, you might just let certain things go, but in the church, you handle things differently. And we also know that in the church, love covers a multitude of sins. This is just saying that the way things look in the church ought to look incredibly different from how things look in the world. And so when the church itself straps on the armor of the world, we look no different than the world. When we see the fighting and the disunity that can take place in the church and how it's handled in the church, that communicates something to the world. You're one of us. May that never be said of us. And this is why we have to recognize that we're in the midst of a supernatural battle. And we see this in verses 11, 12, and 13, that there is a supernatural battle that's taking place. So it, it begins by telling us what our battle is not. Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, which is mankind. And you might think, be thinking, yeah, we do fight against mankind, and yeah, we do. We have to battle against flesh and blood. But the point that's being made by Paul is, what's behind that? What's behind the struggles that we have with one another? What's what's behind the struggles we face in in this world? And so Paul's really getting to this, where does the real battle lie? Paul is unmasking our enemy. So we can see our enemy. It's not flesh and blood. The great, uh, the great theologian Charles Hodge wrote this. Our natural disposition would lead us to direct all our exertions against the men themselves. He goes on to say, but this, is, this foolish desire will be restrained by the consideration that the men who annoy us are nothing more than darts thrown by the hand of Satan. While we are employed in destroying those darts, we lay ourselves open to be wounded on all sides. Hodge makes such a great point. When we face battles in this world, we tend to go after other people. And he's saying this, what you're actually going after is the darts you're not going after the dart thrower. So often that's where we fight our battles. 
is with the people themselves rather than recognizing we're in a supernatural battle that requires supernatural strength, that requires supernatural armor. In fact, this is, is, a, is a constant struggle. He says, for we do not wrestle. That's the reality of the battle, is wrestling. It's a, it's, it's, it's a constant thing. And wrestling itself, is. It, 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 this is not some secret Greek word. Wrestle means wrestle. It's speaking of an intense struggle of close, hand-to-hand combat. And in wrestling, I think the way, the reason the Holy Spirit directs Paul to use that word wrestling, not only because it would have been, it would have been familiar to the church of Ephesus and familiar to us because all people from the beginning of time, you watch little kids, one of the first things they do is wrestle with one another. We understand it. Wrestling is where you have to put your hands on your enemy and you have to grapple with them. And they put their hands upon you and they're grappling you. And wrestling is exhausting. Wrestling requires incredible technique. It requires muscle use of muscles not normally used. That's why when you see a modern day wrestler, they don't have a neck. It's like it just goes shoulder to head. Because they built up certain muscles for the task of wrestling. And we understand what wrestling is. How do we develop those muscles? How do we develop that technique of wrestling? For the Christian, they're developed the same way that a wrestler would develop them, and that's through constant, continual practice. The Christian life is one of constant and continual wrestling. That's your Christian life. Whatever it may be, whatever our struggles, whatever our temptations are, we are continually, the Christian is wrestling with them. And so one thing that might be of encouragement for you this morning is that if you are in Christ, you know it because you wrestle with it. But if you're not wrestling with it, That's a cause for examination, isn't it? That's a cause to say, why am I not wrestling with sin? Why am I not bothered by sin? Why am I not bothered with the disunity that we sometimes face? Why am I not bothered by these things? Well, the Christian wrestles against these things, and specifically, we're told it's this. It's the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the darkness, the spiritual forces... We are wrestling against the schemes of the devil. This is where our battle lies. Let's start with the schemes of the devil. The first thing you have to know is the devil is a real personal being created by God. He's the supreme, supreme being of the angelic world. His name means slander. And when it says his schemes... That word comes from a Greek word that sounds like our English word, method. And so when it speaks of the schemes of the devil, it's the methods of the devil, the way the devil does things. And so it's speaking of a systematic arrangement. And there's a couple things we have to understand about the devil. He is sharp, he is smart, and he has observed human nature for 6,000 years. And he is not omniscient, so that means he learns to watch how humanity responds to him. And he evolves in his craft. 
but we have to know who he is. Scripture says he's a liar. Scripture says he's a murderer. And so that means this, as the devil does not want our good, but rather wants to seek to lie us, to, to kill us. And he does that primarily by calling that which is good bad, and that which is bad he calls good. Sound familiar to the world we live in right now? That is this whole entire month celebrating that which is evil and wicked and calling it good? You can't escape it. Go into any store this month. It's a lie. It's a culture of death. And it brings murder. Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. We also see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, he's, he's deceptive. 1 Peter 5.8 says that he's on the hunt. 1 Timothy 3.6-7 says he lays traps. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 tells us the good news that he's a defeated foe. Now, we probably won't ever interact personally with Satan, but you will interact with his minions. the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, which is speaking of the demonic world. And many commentators think that this is speaking of a hierarchy within the unseen world. And it may, but the point is, is that there is a plethora of enemies seeking our harm. They're called the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're told that this is a present darkness. He goes on to say that in the evil day, and that is simply this. It's not speaking of a future day. It's not speaking of a past day. It's speaking of the current battle we're in right now. We have to get that down. When it says the evil day, and when it says of this present darkness, it's speaking of the present darkness. It's not speaking of a future battle. It's not speaking of some future great evil day. It's present, which means this is this is what we face right now. It's a constant battle. Now in your life, it might not always be as fierce, right? That's the nature of war. There's days where there's more killing than not. But what we have to understand is that even though the world says this evil day and this present darkness, we as Christians have to understand one truth. And it is this. Even in this, Christ is ruling over it. Look what it says in chapter 1. Of that hierarchy of the demonic world. In chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Christ, far above all, rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age. Which age are we in? This age. Christ is over it. Christ is over it. In this age but also in the one to come. Christ is over all things. When we think of the kingdom of God, sometimes it's categorized like this. You have a kingdom of God and you have the kingdom of Satan. And now here's where I think people go wrong on that doctrine. They go one of two ways. They, they, they say that Christ is ruling and there's no battle for us. We don't have a really battle. 
or they elevate Satan to truly having a kingdom with unlimited power. And Christ is just on the side waiting for the right moment. But what we have to understand is what Scripture says is Scripture very clearly teaches us Christ is ruling right now. Christ is over Satan. He has conquered him. Satan is limited in what he's able to do. He can no longer bind or blind the nations. That's why we're given the Great Commission. And so we cannot understand our current battle apart from the reality that Christ is over it right now. So yes, Satan is real. Yes, he is attacking. He is a roaring lion. He's deceptive. He hates you. He wants to murder you. But Christ is over him. Christ is sovereign over all things. This has to do with how we think about not only how we live life right now, but this also helps us to think about eschatology. Eschatology is end times. I'm going to give you my eschatology right now. It's very simple. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 18, it says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's my end times, is this, is that Christ is building His kingdom. He is building the church, and Satan cannot conquer it. But the fact that Jesus tells us He will not prevail against us tells us that there is a struggle right now that we will face. So we we can't be either pessimistic that thinking, oh boy, it's going to just get so horrible and we just can't wait till Christ comes back. Christ is reigning right now. And He will build His church. If the church diminishes in California, that doesn't mean that the world revolves around us and Christ's church is only being built here. Christ is building His church. And He's going to continue building His church. It's His church. It's His bride. He loves it. He died for it. He is sanctifying it. And so the battle we face right now, Christ is over it. He has conquered it. He is ruling over it. And He has told us that the powers of darkness will not prevail against His church. Why? Because He will build it. Revelation chapter 17 verse 14 says this, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. Why? For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. Christ will win, and He will win with His bride alongside of Him. There's my eschatology. Christ wins. Christ has won. We see that we're given a supernatural strength. We're given supernatural armor. We're in a supernatural battle, but we also have supernatural perseverance. You see that in verse 11, and you see that in verse 13, where we're told to stand firm twice. 
that we can stand against the devil and that we are to stand firm. So why are we called to be strong in the Lord? Why are we called to put on the full armor of God? We're told why, is that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so the idea of standing here is not just defensively, but also offensively. Remember, it's not just defensive armor, but it's offensive armor. That's why you're given a sword. A sword is not just for defense. A sword is also to kill your enemy. And so we see that this strength that we're given is that not just that we stand defensively, but offensively as well. The armor and strength of God are so that we may face and withstand with courage the attack of Satan as he attacks the church. We have a supernatural perseverance that Christ himself ensures for his people. So what do we see from this text? Well, we're told to stand firm, but we're told we cannot stand firm in our own strength. We're told not to stand firm in our own strength. We do not stand firm with our own weapons, but we fight spiritual battles spiritually. Our armor is from God. It's supplied by God. It is unlimited, but we are still called to put that armor on. And we cannot escape the reality that how we prepare for the battle we are in and that we are told is the present darkness is through the means of God's grace. And the means of God's grace is so often shown in His church. The means of God's grace cannot be anything apart from His word, prayer, and the communion of the saints. So what do we need to be aware of here? We need to be aware that there is a present battle We have to recognize it's a spiritual battle. And let's just say this, is that whenever in the church there becomes issues, it's best that we just stop, take a breath, and say, wait, where's this coming from? Maybe let temperatures cool down. Because when we don't, what happens? We start looking like the world. We also need to be aware of what type of battle things are, and that is that they are a spiritual battle. Do you find it interesting that we're not told to win the victory ourselves here? In this battle, we're not told that we need to win the victory. Why is it that we're not told to go out and win a victory? Because it's already won. It's an already won. Christ is our captain. He has defeated our foe. And so when we're faced with trials, when we're faced with battles, we look to Christ. When faced with the lies of Satan, we look to Christ. When the church is assaulted by false teachers, we do not despair, but rather we look to Christ. Will for one second Christ forsake his bride? No. And finally, the thing that we have to recognize is the armory, the strength, standing firm is for those who have trusted in Christ. Christ is king. And he's either your king by grace or he's going to be your king and you're going to experience his wrath. But it doesn't change the fact that Christ is king. And so this is true for the believer because our king is a righteous king and he demands righteousness from his citizens. 
And the problem is, is that none of us have our own righteousness, so the king himself gives us his righteousness that we may be part of his kingdom. And we have that by grace, through faith, by trusting in our great good king, where he makes us righteous with his own righteousness, by faith. And when he does that, he supplies you with strength, he supplies you with armor, and he ensures that you will stand firm to the end by that same grace. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great mercy that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that we are in the midst of a battle. We face it daily. There's not a minute that goes by where we don't face temptations and struggles, where we don't see the effects of sin. But we're comforted knowing that Christ is king over all, that Christ is our captain. Christ has won the battle on our behalf. We do pray for your grace that, Father, you would lead us to our knees to look to you for grace and time of need, that we would look to you for help, that we would not fight according to uh, the weapons of man, but we would be looking to you. We pray that this church, Father, would always demonstrate that it is of light and of salt, that we would never look like the world, that we wouldn't fight like the world, but rather we would be different and peculiar because we have been made a different and peculiar people. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing our...